Proper social distance shit talking from spare bedrooms across exurban Atlanta. Welcome to the Godless Heathens Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Don. I am Jeff. And I'm Jerry. This is a podcast by atheists that talks about a lot of things, not just atheism. We will challenge your assumptions and ours too. Definitely not here to preach to the atheist choir, but to critique, ridicule, and poke fun at anyone, especially ourselves. So join us as we examine the crossroads of politics and religion from the secular perspective. And remember, don't believe everything you hear on this podcast, or anywhere else for that matter, until you've independently verified it for yourself. In other words, duck, duck, go that shit. Episode 78. Wow. And we have a special guest with us tonight. So we do have a special guest on today's Godless Heathens podcast. It is Doug Paget, And in no particular order, Doug is a political activist, author, radio host, ultramarathoner, progressive evangelical pastor, founding pastor of Solomon's Porch in South Minneapolis, a goodness conspirator, which Jeff put in there, and he is also executive director of Vote Common Good, a nonprofit political organization he founded in 2018. Vote Common Good is inspiring, energizing, and mobilizing people of faith, and maybe some people not of faith, to make the common good their voting criteria and to pursue faith, hope, and love for a change on Election Day 2020 and prevent the re-election of Donald Trump. Yes. We are all down with that. Before we get into Doug, we need to talk about the drinks that we're all imbibing on tonight. Yep. So, Doug, you want to go first? What are you drinking there? Well, uh, nice to be with y'all. And, uh, you know, I think befitting that I'm sitting outside of a hotel in Columbus, Ohio, I am drinking a superior light beer, the Michelob Ultra. 2.6 carbs and 95 calories, 4.2 alcohol by volume. That is the most ultra marathoner beer ever. (laughs) (laughs) I literally just read the entirety of the label. I don't think this is a particularly uh, good beer, but I think it's a great drink. <laughs> there we go. So, Jerry, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Black is Beautiful Imperial Stout, the version from Idle Hounds in Great Beach, Florida. It is 10.3. If Doug's is the ultra marathoner beer, mine is the ultra couch surfing beer. <laughs> and it is delicious. I will say a 10.3 is worth worth enjoying. Yes. And so what I'm having is is called Dare Mighty Things, and which seems kind of appropriate for our conversation tonight. We've had several of these beers. They're always good. This is from the Brewing Project in uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, kind of close to Minneapolis. Mm. And so it's a single hop IPA with Azaka hops, if I'm pronouncing that right. And I'm trying to find the, um, yeah, it's a 6.63 ABV. So not quite up to Jerry's mm. standards, but damn good. And Don, what are you having? Well, I have to confess, I, I had a little bit of a stomach bug today, so I'm abstaining on today's oh. show. I'm mm. just having a ginger ale. I'm, 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 I got a little boo-boo in my tummy tum. So. Oh. <laughs> a ginger ale? What are you, on an airplane right now? You can't drink ginger ale at home. <laughs> didn't even know you could buy that at the store. <laughs> so, yeah, we thank you, Doug, so much for coming on our podcast. We have a long history going back to the emergent Christian days. People have to Google that to find out what that is. Duck, 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 go, duck, duck. go. Yeah, not Google. It'll, it'll track you. Um, <laughs> but he was in town this last weekend doing uh, his Vote Common Good tour. So I went to kind of experience that and was extremely impressed with the whole crew that you had there. Everybody had such an amazing story, uh, amazing songs. So it was quite an uplifting experience to know that there's other people that are trying to get Trump the hell out of the office, the White White House. So, um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what Vote Common Good is, how it started, and all that background? Yeah, well, again, thanks, guys, for having me on. Really uh, appreciate it. Um, I've been a pastor for a long time, uh, pretty much all my adult life. I got into religion when I was a 16-year-old from a family that didn't have any religious background. And, and so I've been working with 
public expressions of the Christian faith for, I don't know, 40 years. And watching Donald Trump uh, be supported by religious people sent a shock across my own system. And uh, while I, you know, fashion myself as a progressive and see myself as somebody who, uh, you know, wants to advocate for a Christianity that's broad and inclusive and generous and, you know, to your language, um, uh, human in its expression, to watch people who have said their entire lives that they are uh, first committed to their faith and then committed to their Republican identity. To watch them just sell out to this guy for a bowl of porridge is uh, just heartbreaking. So we started Vote Common Good really to try to respond to the onslaught of the religious right that uh, has an entire messaging machine to tell religious voters that they have to vote for Republicans no matter who that Republican is. And so that's what we're trying to counterbalance. And that's a message that we're trying to get out both to individual voters, but also to uh, the media. You know, we're basically what we do at Vote Common Good is try to have a space to be in the media to um, offer different opinions to the many people who would uh, who need to hear that you can be a, a person of the Christian faith and not vote for Republicans. And that shouldn't be shocking, but to a lot of white Christians, they've never heard such a thing. And that shows both a racial bias and also a kind of echo chamber that a lot of us find ourselves in. So, yeah, you were saying, you know, when I, when I saw you at, at this event, uh, I mean, your events are almost the polar opposite of a Trump rally, you know, where, where Trump brings in you know, hundreds of people, tightly packed, no masks. Yours are socially distanced. Everybody was wearing masks. I bet the tone was a little different too. The tone was quite different, yes. <laughs> but you said part of, your, part of your push is to connect with the local media as you do these, and that's where you kind of get your voice amplified. Is that what you're part of your program? Yeah, you know, yeah, that's that's right, Jeff. That's that's one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to provide opportunities for the broader media and social media to have something to talk about when it comes to religion and politics. That's not how many uh, religious people in this country are selling out to the right wing uh, side of the Republican Party. And I, I have long been an advocate of not telling other people to be quiet, but trying to get your own perspective to be more amplified. So basically what we're doing is trying to find ways to amplify the other part of the story that a lot of people know exists, that there's a lot of people of Christian faith who live their lives on to benefit others and to benefit society and to benefit humanity. And um, this is one of those times where we felt like we could use the tricks of the trade and the uh, and the, the activities of the media to be able to spread a, uh, a larger a larger voice because we know how many religious people feel really isolated from the outside world. It's not just people that like live in small towns or part of like little you know fundamentalist cult groups. There's just a lot of people who never hear anything outside of their own friends, family, and, and social streams. And we want to get the message out loud and clear. So we, so we use the media a lot for that. We run billboards and social media ads, and we try to get on, on television. Like, Jeff, after we were there together in Atlanta, the local Fox News station ran a story about our oh, event. Cool. It advocates what we do. And that's our goal is to be in the Fox News ecosystem. So in many of the cities we go to, either they send a film crew or we shoot video and send it over to them. And then our public relations company gives them a, a script about what we're doing and they run it on the evening news. And, uh, you know, it happens uh, multiple times a week all over the country. And what I came to learn, which is I don't know, kind of interesting to me, maybe you guys would find this interesting, that local news is by far the most watched news source in America. More than social media, more than cable news, all of that. It's your local news. And conservatives have figured out that if you want to dominate the media landscape, you first dominate local news and then you dominate local radio. And progressives have tended to stay away from both of those things because we all think we're too good for it. We want to play big time. We want to get on satellite radio. We want to be on the internet. And we're just leaving 60% of the population unreached. And I really think going forward, we have to find ways to be on, on, you know, on people's radios in their trucks and, um, on their televisions when they're tuning into local television, especially the 530, 630, 930, 1030, 1130 news. Well, that's interesting. I mean, like like Sinclair Media is an example of where the the conservative side saw that same value, and they're kind of pushing their agenda into these local networks. So, Well, the owners of Sinclair are really, really conservative and have mm -hmm. bought hundreds of TV stations. So there's a good chance... That's right. You, if you're in a market like there's probably one in Columbus, a Sinclair station, they have taken a little bit of the talk radio ethos and put it on local TV news. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, I just think as a strategy, if you want to reach more people with a message and try to compete for the perspectives and ideology that's being shaped and formed in America, we've got to get into that business, right? And this is just one, this is just a long going conversation, sort of separate from what we're doing, particularly at Vote Common Good. But, you know, when, when you want to build a progressive movement in America, you really need it to be a populist movement. And if you're going to have a populist movement, you have to use the populist media. And while the internet is obviously growing, it has become designed to not be populist. The internet has become designed to be specialization. And so... uh, there's just a lot of, the, yeah, like QAnon or, or, you know, my own Facebook feed. I'm like, you know, I have not seen a single pro-Trump post in probably six months, eight months from anybody. And I'm sure I have friends that are posting things that are, you know, uh, uh, beneficial to Trump. But I think based on what I've been posting on Facebook, I just never see it. And that's true for everybody. So this is part of the work that we all have to do. Yeah. And I pardon me and pardon me for the background noise. Just for a little context. I live in a bus <laughs> and we travel around the country and there are nine of us that live in the bus. And uh, while I sit over here and blabber once again, uh, Vanessa and others are and Brady and others are hauling food in from our dinner and cleaning it oh, in nice. our bus. So that's some of the background noise that you now, hear. Is uh, Calvin still on your your bus? In fact, Calvin is. He's, uh, I don't know, 50 feet behind okay. me. He's taking a class. Uh, he's a student at the new school in New York. And so he's in the back of the bus taking an, taking a class uh, or in a class. And uh, I'm up here and, um, you know, other people are working hard to make life possible for us on the bus. Well, tell him kudos for the article he wrote, The uh, the Boy on the Bus. That was quite touching and moving. And I will. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, it really explained the, the tour, kind of the things that you encountered. People were flipping you off. And what are, what are some of your stories from the road, both positive and, and negative that yeah. you've experienced? Well, uh, okay. So, so first of all, uh, one of the lessons that I've learned is that by appearance, you can't always tell where people are going to fall on the spectrum of Trump. Um, like I, th I feel like I, you know, like I know it pretty well and you can kind of come into a place, you can kind of look around and feel like, you know, if someone's wearing, like I saw at the airport today, a guy wearing literally a make America great hat again, pretty clear where he stands. But I tend to think like, boy, if I see sort of, you know, upper middle aged, uh, white people that kind of have the look of the people that I grew up with, you know, in a first ring suburb of Minneapolis. And I'm like, OK, I think they're probably Trump supporters. And we've just entered into hundreds and hundreds of conversations. And it's shocking how often people don't fit the paradigm when you give them a chance to explain themselves. So that's been a learning. I just look to see if they're wearing a mask or not. And that's how I make my determination. <laughs> I figure if they're not wearing a mask, they're a Trump supporter. Absolutely. And sometimes it turns out to be true. And sometimes, I mean, it's just shocking uh, what, what you find out when you're talking to people all across the country, which we've been doing for the better part of this year and even in 2018. Wow. So that lesson of like, it's not totally uh, what you see is not always uh, what you get uh, is pretty powerful. But I'll also add this, and I think this is really important, and it's caused me to become even more hardened in my opposition to Donald Trump. There are so many Trump supporters who are so profoundly mean, unkind, and un uncaring in their actions toward others. We refer to that as on brand. <laughs> on brand. Uh, like, like literal Proud Boys. We were in, a, you know, we've been uh, in lots of engagement with people who identify as Proud Boys. And I sat in a bar for 45 minutes having a debate with a group of them a couple of weeks ago. So, f you know, from that to just uh, uh, your random people driving by and seeing our bus. We travel in a big bus that says faith, hope and love for a change on Election Day. So it's pretty clear, you know, what we're up to and what we want. We get responses uh, from people and, and we've stood on lots of street corners with at Biden rallies, holding up signs. And I'm not just describing like political difference, right? Like people would say, no, I'm not going to vote for him. The instant rage on people's faces and how fast the middle finger goes up and people just screaming, fuck you at you is unbelievable. So this thing about the lack of civility that we all know is happening. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, when you get out on the road during COVID and you're being public about your opposition to Donald Trump, it is fierce. And this is one of the things that we've learned in our work is people who are in that world, like they're around people who act like that. They know what cost 
is going to be paid if they break from the tribe. So uh, that keeps a lot of people in line. It is kept in by people acting cruel to one another and acting mean. And, and we're not just talking about getting kicked out of your local church. I mean, that's a big problem for a lot of people because that's their social network. But the level to which you will just be excoriated is really, really high. So it's serious what uh, what people are facing if they're going to break from the break from the norm or break from the cult leader. So you've been out on the road for a while. What do you think is driving that? What drives that level of hate? You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't believe in like sin nature or anything, right? So I'm not going to put anything like off on humanity. Like, well, you know, people are just debased or something because I don't believe that that's true. I think that there's been a narrative forming for the last, I don't know, quarter of a century or something, maybe. At least that I've been paying attention to it. So maybe it's going on much longer than that, where we look at one another as if we are enemies of the state, true on enemies. And, and I understand that. I feel that way when I see a Trump supporter. Like when I saw this guy at the airport today with that hat on and I just felt like, you know, not like he's a person with a difference of opinion and we're going to make each other stronger. And then, you know, the, the net that is this great nation's democracy is built by strands that crisscross and none of that stuff. It was just like, there's the enemy and <laughs> I'm the good guy. <laughs> he's the bad guy. Right. And, and I think I'm, you know, I think I'm trying to be generous and kind. And I feel that impulse on the inside. There's a spirit in the air. And I, I don't, I can't quite land my hand on it as to where it's coming from. But I will just add that it's global. Like this same thing is what was behind Brexit. The same thing is what was behind the Muslim revolt and 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 hostile uh, f- f- fundamentalist takeover. This same thing is happening in, you know, in fascist socialist movements around the world. Like there's something that from my brief reading of history, like back in the 60s and 70s, there was a coming together that was happening, almost like an inhale that people were being pulled in. And I feel like we're living in a time of a global exhale and everything's being blown out and blown apart. So I think in some ways we're riding some sort of a of a wave. Uh, and, you know, and, and I, I'm not enough of a woo-woo or a historian to sort of put my finger on what's going on there. But it feels like we are in one moment of something that's happening globally that is impacting this sense of uh, we don't trust each other. Well, historically, those don't end well either. (laughs) So... So you have you have completely channeled the vibe of this podcast for probably the last three months. <laughs> oh, is that right? We've talked about it before, it, and I don't know when it changed, but it seems like at some point people used to vote for a politician for what they could do for them. And now it's almost, especially with Trump, it's not, what is Trump doing for me? It's, what is Trump doing against my enemy? That's what his supporters are like. It's not what he's doing for them. It's what he's doing against the people that they, they see as their, their enemies. You know, I think you're exactly uh, spot on with my experience uh, doing this work over the last couple of years. We, we do some training of Democratic candidates on how to connect with faith voters because Democrats have a hard time connecting with faith voters. <laughs> and one of our one of our learnings and teachings to them is, look, voters don't need you to be like them. Like, don't try to fake some religious accent if you're not religious. But if you are, go ahead and share your background. And too many Democrats don't share their own history and beliefs and all. But they, but our, our advice is they don't need you to be like them. But they do want you to like them. So do what you can to get to know people and to actually like them, right? And secondly, to recognize that with the Trump movement, he sends two messages. One is, I like you, religious voters, conservatives. Secondly, I hate the same people you hate. We have a common enemy. That is a combination that no other politician has been willing to say. Or if it's not, if hate's too strong of a word, I fear the people you fear. I don't understand the people you don't understand. I look down on the people that you look down on. Or that you think look down on you. Okay, can I tell you a story about that? Because I think that's exactly right. I, I live in I live in Minneapolis, and I had a radio show uh, before I started doing this work. And in 2017, when Trump was uh, came to town to tout his tax break, this was about the time he had started or maybe it's 2019, he had started um, going after Ilhan Omar, who is the congresswoman from my district in Minneapolis. And that was making big news. And he came in town on tax day to tout how much he'd helped this, you know, a factory that was in, in outside uh, Minneapolis. So there became a, a protest, a, a rally to support Trump along the roadside, which happens pretty much wherever a president goes. And then a counter rally, which was people supporting Ilhan Omar. And so people were lined up on two sides of this little two lane road on the one side, the Ilhan Omar people, on the other side, the Trump people staring at each other, you know, from 
15 feet, 18 feet away. And I, because I was doing my radio show, was walking back and forth across the, uh, the street interviewing people. And what I heard from people on both sides was the same. And that was, I have no idea who those people are over there and they scare me. Both sides felt that about each other. But when I was on the Trump side, and I probably interviewed 20 plus people, every one of them said some version of what you just said, which was, hey, I'm not a bad person, you know. And I would say, who said you're a bad person? And they would go, well, those people across the street or you by being over here interviewing us or my son or my coworkers or my neighbor, I'm not a bad person for supporting Donald Trump. And what I took away from that was, oh, if those of us who don't, you know, who are trying to stop Trump's reelection don't believe that the Trump supporters have gotten the message that we think they're bad people, they've gotten the message that we think they're bad people. And we have to do something about that come January 21st in this country, right? There's something has to be reconciled. And it might be that people have to come to, uh, to grips with the fact that they, um, you know, are supporting someone who I think is just, I think Donald Trump is just a profoundly flawed human being who's using his flaws for his own purposes and other people are, are willing to be you know, act in bad ways to support him. But we have to do something about this fact that people feel really uh, alienated from one another. This is the, the collective we on the other side of the street. Did we do this or did the entertainment news media that they've been listening to since the 80s on AM radio and now Fox News and the whole ecosystem stoke the flames that we think they are bad people? Did we, and, and I'm not saying that, that we are blameless, but there's definitely a, a vibe of looking down on them. But I think the fire is stoked for them to think we hate them more than we actually do. Because I don't hate these people. I feel the hate and <laughs> I worry about that hate. But they get the hate from every host and every three-hour talk show that, that winds up in a, a standard now lock her up chant and now it's gotten to an actual threat to capture a, a kidnap and probably kill a governor yep so one of our questions is if biden wins what next because yeah. these people aren't going to change they're, they're like the dynamic is still going to be there how do you reach across the aisle without getting punked for people that politically broke every every norm oh yeah. norm fuck you we have the power we're going to do it Yep. I get the fact that we need to reach out, but I am, a, as a Democrat, am tired of being punked. I'm over it. I'm tired of the, the party being bitches. They rolled over for a Amy Coney Barrett and hugged hug, one of our senators, hugged Lindsey Graham after that despicable display. I'm sick of that. Yep. But having two sides that are equally ragey is no good, but... I don't feel like I can, I can let go of the rage. Let me ask you a question. Why do we have to reach across the aisle? If that side were to win on November 3rd, you think they're reaching across the aisle? Yeah, to punch us in the face. Exactly. That same thing. It's, it's We're always the one worried about reaching out to the other side when the other side doesn't want to reach out to us and doesn't want us to reach out to them. We just really stated that we're the problem, <laughs> me and you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the work that we do at Vote Common Good is with the voter, right? And I think sometimes what we all need to do, and I'm, I'm a Democrat as well. So as a Democrat, I have to recognize that when I say I'm a Democrat, that means I'm a Democrat as a voter. When a politician says they're a Democrat, that means they're a Democrat by their profession. And there's something different there. Like, I don't need to be the one to reach across the aisle. My politicians need to figure out how to do that, right? And Or on the other hand, I could reach across the aisle, but I don't want my politicians to do that. We have to separate a little bit the voter identity from the politician identity and know who's doing what here, right? And part of what's happened in our politics, I think, is we become intertwined where we think our own personhood is being presented and represented by our politicians. And we have to be, I think, more sophisticated than that when we watch our politicians do. And it's almost like when you watch a sports game, a sports, uh, that's not like I don't follow sports. It's like when you watch sports and somebody, 
is so intertwined with the success of the quarterback that they start talking in we language. And this is something we've got to figure out in our society. Like, what's the role of our politicians and what's the role of our citizenry? Now, I'm not advocating in this particular sentences here, I'm saying about where we should come down on that, but we got to figure that out, right? Uh, because we know the art of, of politics is different than the art of citizenry. So that's some of the work we have to do. And and I'm, I'm not entirely sure that we don't need Republican voters to go through a reckoning. I think there needs to be a truth and conciliation process with you people who supported Donald Trump, right? And I think neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, community member to community member, after January 20th, when Biden's uh, nominated, you know, uh, sworn in as the president, we're going to need to have that conversation with each other. Like, what were you doing? And you have to start, people have to start answering truthfully for why they did this to one another. Because, you know, the old Buddhist teaching that you don't see the world as it is, you see the world as you are, is what I was hearing when, you know, you were suggesting that do we, you know, is it, do people feel that they're hated because of something others are doing? I think you connected with the earlier conversation that, look, you see the world as I want a politician to hate the people I hate and fear the people I fear, then you might see the world in terms of fear and hate. And one of the things we have to do is to address seeing the world through lenses of fear and hate. And that's part of the work that, I mean, I'm, I'm really, a, I'm a, I mean, you guys don't know me all that well, but I'm a big fan of, of atheist and humanist work because I think that most, as having been a working pastor for 30 years, most people in churches, you know, function as atheists and humanists, right? So we have to have an ethic of reconciliation and love that comes from all sectors of our society, both the religious and the specifically non-religious expressions in our society. And it's really important that we do this kind of work because the humanity needs us to step forward with a, with a path pathway of reconciliation that we find. And I really do think that the spell is going to break, that people are going to uh, come out of this, this you know, the fever dream that they've been in with Trump, and then we're going to have to do some reconciling. And if we just all walk away and say that we've got 51% of the power, so therefore we're now going to you know invoke a bunch of power dynamics and not uh, do something about this 46% of people that support Trump, I think we're really in trouble. How do you do that, though? This seems like trying to get an alcoholic to stop drinking. You can't do it. Do They have to want to do it themselves. Do you, I mean, do you honestly think that these folks I do. are reconcilable? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, as somebody, this might be one of the, one of the uh, professional hazards of being somebody that's in religious work, right, is I actually believe that people do, um, they don't, they don't fundamentally change, but they change in their, in their practice. So, and here's here's what I think is true, and I think your comments about asking alcoholic is the best example that I know of. I think recovery. This is a hopeful optimist in you, right? Because that actually is in one of your bios that you are you are a hopeful opt- optimist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do. I traffic in optimism. I mean, it's not a bad thing. No, I know, but it's a, it's a, Char- it's a, look, it's Charlie Brown with the football, you know, Lucy with the football, which I think is what you were raising before, which I feel like I'm just a glutton for punishment. We did a, a poll that we, in, that, uh, on faith voters that we did with some behavioral change experts. So these are people out of, uh, the University of North Carolina, Duke University, University of Southern California, and they specialize in behavioral habitual change. And what they're looking at is all kinds of things from like buying trends or getting people to wash their hands or wear masks or changing their eating habits, like looking at human beings through the lens of habitual patterns and then seeing change come through a habitual pattern change. So AA is a great way you can learn this or recovery. Uh, Noom, that new, you know, how to lose weight program, how to learn a new language is another uh, example of this kind of thing, changing behaviors and habits. And part of what we've learned from them is that there's three components that are in place when someone makes a habitual change change. That is, they need to take in new new information for sure. Like they have to learn something, know something, acknowledge something that they didn't acknowledge, know, or, or, or have access to before. But that information has to be coupled with an invitation that someone can accept. And that invitation has to be coupled with a community of practice that's putting that new behavior into actualization. So it's information invitation and participation that have to be in have, have to be available to people and that's a really slow and complex process and part of the reason that our binary be a democrat be a republican stays so 
separate and distinct is because our communities, these political identities and communities are actually bounded communities that don't allow people from the other side to ever join, right? The cost of leaving one community, even if you've taken in new information, even if you've gotten an invitation. And do you think social media exacerbates that? I don't know that it does. I mean, look, I, I tried to run for office in uh, in my own uh, you know community, run for the state legislature in, in uh, where, where I live in Minnesota. And you get involved with Democratic, you know, the Democratic Party in Minnesota. You're like, oh my God, this is the most bounded set insider group. Who are you? You're unsafe. We don't know you. What are your? Uh, did, did you pass muster? Are you the right kind of person? Did you? Are you? Did you? Do you think the right things? Did you, have you ever said anything that would like, it's unbelievable the cost of entry to get into the political system. And the same is true for a voter. Like, look, if, if you try to enter, if you come as a Democrat and you try to enter into the Republican stream, or better yet, as a Republican or an independent and try to enter into the Democratic stream, and you go to like some Democratic get together, and you say, you know, in the last election, I voted for Donald Trump, or I voted for George Bush twice, or, you know, I, I used to be a Reagan guy. I mean, the the level of fear and you're not welcome here and I can't believe you or whatever purity test you can't seem to pass is so high. So I don't think the, the issue is only lack of information or bad information or lack of invitation. Please join us. Here's how you would. It is the participation side where I think we could really see some great improvements and gains because the cost of, we, we talk to people, and this is barely an exaggeration, every day who are crossing over in their behavior from voting for Republicans to in this election voting for a Democrat for the first time. And the level of trepidation that is and feeling like they're violating their tribe and they're just willing to go without any friends in the political spectrum again is so high. Uh, these are seriously brave people and they shouldn't have to pay as high of a cost. Like our political system needs to have a welcoming committee, right? It needs to really welcome people. And, and you guys, I bet you know this because I bet you know as atheists, so many people who are formerly religious that want to join some kind of an atheist or humanist movement, you know how hard it is to leave the religious community and how unwelcoming it can be to join any new community. And that's not just true. It's not, you know, it's not, that's not biased toward any particular community. It's true of, it's true of, of, of all of them. It's just hard to break into a new community. And I think the place we could see the greatest work in 2021, 23, 22, 23, and 24 is to create communities of civic participation that are more welcoming. A nice landing spot for people. Yeah, seriously, like you have to, you have to have one. And I think we should launch an entire campaign. Something we've been talking about, like, did you vote for a Democrat for the first time? Welcome. We're glad to have you. Instead of the attitude, which is, did you vote for a Democrat for the first time? What the hell took yeah, you so long? Time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <About> <laughs> which, is, time. which is what I feel like when I, right, right? That's what I feel like. Seriously, like you struggled in 2016. Uh, you know, that's, that lays very deeply inside of me just with my own like religious leader communities, you know, or there's a, there's this real fundamental pastor named John Piper who just came out today uh, and uh, and said that he is saying to people you cannot vote for Donald Trump as a Christian Piper and he also said Piper you can't said vote that? For, yeah and, yeah Whoa. and he also said you can't vote for Joe Biden but you can't vote for either of them which is a big deal right a really big deal now I disagree with this guy on about every single thing in the religious community you could have but I feel like I felt when I was at the airport today that I'm at the airport with a whole bunch of people that are in the Minneapolis International Airport coming from different places going to different places, but we're all here right now. We got here in different ways and we may never see each other again, but we're right here right now. And so I'm glad to have him at the place where he says, as a person of faith, you cannot support Donald Trump. Now, where he went from there, which is you also can't support Joe Biden. I wasn't on that flight. I'm on the, I'm going to support Joe Biden flight, but he was on another one. And that moment of sort of meeting and like just recognizing that that's a win, right? And as much as I want to say, really 12 days before the second time Donald Trump is running for office, you decided to have a backbone. You decided to have some theological clarification. Like, yeah. really? On Thursday? Yeah, what was the last October draw? October 22nd? What was your last draw, right? But all of that attitude is the kind of thing that says to somebody, you're really not welcome here. And, um, you know, every tradition has its way of saying to its members, Hey, be better at welcoming people when they come, whether it's at the first hour, the 12th hour, or the, the final hour. Welcome them in. In that same kind of vein, as far as trying to welcome people to your tribe, that's kind of the, the stumbling block, I think, that we have, both sides, progressive Christians and atheists. I think there's some kind of a, uh, 
a nervousness about the other side, not an understanding of the other side. That's why I'm, I'm impressed with your vote common good is because like we talked about Saturday is like we check every box except for one. So why should we let that be a hold up to working together, partnering together in our political realm? And so how do we how do we kind of break down those those walls so we understand each side? You know, because atheists, I don't think you know, all they see in the news is the evangelical Christian. So when they when they hear the word Christian, that's what they think of. You know, they really aren't aware that there's a progressive side. And I'm not sure if on the even progressive Christian side that they see atheists as a partner. So what do we do to, to kind of work that together? Well, look, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, uh, at our church in, in Minneapolis, we, we hosted a thing called, uh, it was a church movement that we were trying to help launch called uh, have an, uh, Invite an Atheist to Church Day, not to attend church, but to speak at your church. So share your sermon, share your sermon with an atheist. And I have done all kinds of interfaith work and all kinds of inclusion work and all, you know, all as you know, many manner of things around that. And generally you get sort of even progressives like you get like, yeah, hey, that's really great. You say to someone you should have an atheist come and do or share your sermon with you. And you would have thought that I was saying burn the place down. The fear and the bias against atheists and humanists in this country is so intense Right. So oh, I'm saying to my, my religious <laughs> friends, I don't know if you guys know it, but there are people really afraid of atheists and humanists. It is a, a level of fear that is really hard to understand. So as a, as a people group, you know, like atheists and humanists, and I know that, you know, at least in Minneapolis, the atheists and humanists don't always get along. Um, there's a little binary uh, uh, distinction between those, those are two. Those the denominations we have, right? <laughs> they are. They are. And I actually think because it's so extreme, it's one of the great places where showing how people can come together at a common airport, you know, at the municipal airport. So if you think of civic life as kind of this municipal airport of sharing, it's one of the great places where those should come together. And look, I, I'm not sure there's a lot of hope for getting the religious community to open up to atheists in their official capacity. What came out from a lot of churches and we advocated for pastors to have an, have an atheist who would come and share their sermon with them was there's no way I'm sharing my sermon with one. But I'd have them in a Sunday school class, or we could do a Sunday night open forum conversation. Like, we're glad to have them here. I just can't turn over my sermon to them, which is part of the magical thinking of religious people, that the sermon somehow carries a mystical power that any other conversation in the same room just at a different time doesn't carry. But that's a problem on the just the religious construct side. But I think there's some room for this. And I actually think that you know, what would do a lot of good for the political conversation within religious people in this country is to know and be in conversation with more out atheists. Because, you know, the joke in churches is, of course, we have a lot of atheists in our churches. They just happen to be the ushers and they hang out in the lobby the whole time, right? <laughs> they want to be they want to be part of church. They want to be part of the church and the community. They just can't stand to be in here anymore. So they work the lobby and hand out brochures and pamphlets and, you know, uh, bulletins and so on. So. Yeah, I knew somebody that did one of those Ask an Atheist Day at church and, and went to a church and, and they just had, like, like you said, like an open forum with the congregation mm-hmm. where they could ask questions. He kind of gave a, a little bit of a, of, of a speech, just kind of ran through something, but then afterwards kind of opened it up to a Q&A. And I asked him, I said, how did you talk the pastor into allow, allowing you to do this? And he says, oh, he's leaving. He's going to another church already. So, <laughs> <laughs> the last hurrah. Yeah, yeah. That is perfect. They couldn't run him out of town, so he's like, screw it, let's just do it. Yeah, I was a pastor at a very progressive sort of, you know, all housemaid like kind of church. And when we would have people who, you know, were non-theistic uh, or atheist or humanist and they would be out about that, people around there would be like, well, why are they here if they don't believe in God? And I'm like, well, why are you here if you, <laughs> if you do? Like, so it, there's a lot of work to be done to help religious people understand why they're involved in religion themselves. Because look, none of these people that said that stuff to me thought there was a hell that they were going to go to. They weren't hell avoidant. That, there was none of that. Their fear is fundamentally this, I think, which is... Well, if you can construct an imagination of a life well lived without God, you will do it. So if we give people a hint that they could have a version of life well lived without God, they're going to abandon God. And that fear is so bizarre to me as somebody, you know, who wasn't raised in religion and sort of got into it, you know, in my later teenage years was like, 
if you're trying to convince people to hold on to a notion of God, the game is over, right? <laughs> like if, if, if somehow they're like, like, like I, I believe God exists, but I believe we exist in God. So that's sort of how I tell the story. But if your view of God is that God needs you to make sure people believe in God, that's not much of a, of a view of God, right? So, but so many people have never even thought very hard about a notion of theism that they can't even begin to get their head around why someone would want to be in a church unless they're trying to bring an end to them. And the number of, of conservative Christians who think the Democratic Party wants to end religion in this country is really high. And the number of atheists who really do want to uh, use the Democratic Party to end religion in this country is really quite small. So I don't understand why the fear is is the way that it well, is. I'm sure you, you realize, too, that that side, the evangelical church side and all that, sees you guys as atheists. <laughs> totally. Yes, I, oh, I can assure you, you know, like the, the line do tell earlier. Yeah, I could read to you all the message I've received just today about how by f voting for Joe Biden, I must be a baby killer who someday is going to stand before God that I don't believe exists. That's a daily deluge in my uh, in my email box. But didn't that have to be taught? Yes. If it's not inherent in their nature and it's taught, how do we move on when that is continuing to be taught? in more strident ways with every passing these days, like month. Are, are you supposed to, and I mentioned it earlier, you know, like reach across the aisle and I feel like every time, like I'm gonna get slapped. <laughs> yeah. And as an atheist, believe in anything you want, keep it out of my schools and keep it out of my government. But everything else, kind of knock yourself out. But that Eve, that's a bridge too far though for it seems like a lot of people. Well, so if you, if you take this behavioral change theory thing I was talking about before, where there's information, invitation, and participation that are required, I think there's, in addition to, yeah, I think the hard work we have to do is make sure our communities are open to the to the people that have already crossed the internal Rubicon, right? Like that's the low-hanging fruit, to borrow that metaphor. Just the people who've already shifted and voted for a Democrat for the first time, welcome them into the Democratic community. But I do think there's also work to be done on the information side. And I think you're right to say, yeah, it's taught. It doesn't, you don't start that way. You're taught these things to, to write emails like people write to me or to tell people that atheists are, are subhuman or are, are bad. So if you can teach that, you can teach the opposite of it. And one of the things that happens to progressive people for some reason is that we think that our ideas are self-evident and don't need to be taught. And we don't recognize that we were actually taught those things as well. And if other people are going to be teaching things of distinction and binary hatred and all this, then we just have to teach the other thing. And we have to be more active and more engaged and more places to learn more about it. I mean, look, one of the things the conservative Christian side has done is they have found ways to package and to distribute their ideas to the mass market. Market. Now, they act like we're the fringe, we're the outside, nobody listens to us, we don't have any access to the media, right? Meanwhile, uh, they gobble up and distribute all over the place. So what we have to do, I think, is develop more content, more information, and take the uh, role of teaching people things they don't know. Because look, progressivism is not self-evident. It takes a lot of work to actually be a person who grows and matures beyond your childhood imagination of good and evil and right and wrong and all of this and to grow into a person of, of human flourishing, to find that part of your life that your heart knows is possible and to step into that and to grow and to develop beyond the things you were uh, experiencing as a, as a child or the things that you were being taught as a child. It's a lot of work to grow as an adult. And man, there's a lot of adults who want to learn and to know more and they'll to get it, to find it, is really, really hard. And to find the conservative stuff, whether it's in politics or religion or any of the rest of it, it's, it's not as easy to get to. And I think we need to be better with catchy phrases. I think we need to be better with punchlines. I think we need to be better with, with quick phrase references. We need a hat. We need a hat. I mean, I mean, look, say what you want, but you know, stronger together and build back better is not, not, not really, you know, great political uh, stuff or, you know, believe what you want. Uh, as much as I think that's important, we could just be better at this. And, and look, I'm, I'm not throwing stones here. Like I'm a guy who's, this is, this is a confessional booth for someone who's tried to advocate for a view of Christianity that's more inclusive and kind and generous and informed and educated. 
and and I've clearly lost, right? I mean, I'm I'm living on a bus right now on a penance tour because my DNA is all over the crime scene that has Donald Trump being elected president, right? All religious people are guilty of this. We just have to do better work in more complex ways and and not think that somehow some generationalism is going to save us. Right, yes. Because I promise you, in being out here and doing this work, it is not. Uh, fundamentalism exists within youth culture just as much as with any other generation. And this nonsense that Gen Z or millennials are going to save us is no going to be no more true than the hippie generation, the baby boomers, or the Gen X are going to save us. That that generational shift, that is not the moral arc of the universe. So you think that's all magical thinking? I totally think it's magical thinking. And the only people I can't say that to are current Gen X or, or current millennials and Gen Zs, because they are convinced that all it's going to take is their generation, because they are so woke and delight, enlightened that they're just going to walk forward. I'm like, can I describe to you the 1960s for a minute? <laughs> Oh, but aren't they the ones that need to hear it the most? You know, that's interesting. I actually think the greatest age for the transformation we're talking about is about age 35 to 55. You know, this whole joke that education is wasted on the young, I think is actually true. I think people hit an emotional, spiritual, human moment of transition somewhere around 35. We often write it off as a midlife crisis. That's exactly the moment we should be looking to connect with people and help them make a a threshold move to cross over from one view of life to another. And I think we should spend our time, energy, and money from on people 35 to 55, because that's when they go conservative hardcore. It's just, you can almost, you can almost track well, it. And that's when they have time to wrestle with these kind of life, uh, you know, philosophies too. I mean, when you're in college and you're just starting on your job, you're starting a family, you don't have time for that kind of discussion, that kind of, you know. That's also your major earning years too. Totally. It used to be at least. Coming out of college, you tend to be a little bit more liberal, Grow up, get married, have a couple of kids, start you know making a little bit more money, have a mortgage. You, t- you tend to turn a little bit more conservative. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this billboard out in Minneapolis near a casino that says uh, Treasure Island Casino. Walk in a Democrat, walk out a Republican. <laughs> right? Uh, it's a great, it's a great line. Um, so, but but I also think the other piece in that, just sort of sociologically, that's going. I think you're right. It's earning capacity. It's all the rest. It's also you start to lose your capacity to make new friends about age 35. Society doesn't allow an own personal life situations cause people to like start to shed friends in their life, not to make new ones. And one of the things you can do, one of the ways that conservatives tend to move forward, especially churches, is that they create avenues by which people 35 to 55 can meet new people and make new friends. And the most important thing for anyone making a habitual change in their life is that they have a friend who's walking the similar path with them. And I just think there's so much work we can do with progressive agendas to get our eyes off of the 16 and 18 year olds and stop believing the magical thinking of generationalism and start doing the hard work of the ages somewhere 35, 65. And I'm actually willing to be convinced that the older generation is the one that's uh, even more movable, especially as people retire earlier, live longer, that there might even, you might even be able to push that up to 65. The the number one group that we have seen in our polling that are making the shift away from Donald Trump and to Joe Biden from the faith community are people that are 45 and older. That's the biggest group that has shifted. Right. That's because Gen X, we are the chosen people. (laughs) (laughs) Finally getting our due. Yeah. I mean, it's about time. I mean, we had to live through Reagan in college and that wasn't very, that wasn't really good. So it is time that we take over and I'm going to tell my kids that as soon as the podcast is over. (laughs) You are. You're going to say it's, it's breakfast club in America, kids. (laughs) It's dad time. (laughs) Look, and and I'll tell you, I mean, just to shift back to the political thing for a minute, what the Obama team believed was that there was a generational cultural shift that was taking place in 2008, which that what they needed to do was to arrange themselves to take advantage of that cultural shift and didn't need to work for it anymore. And a shift happened in 2012, was manifest in 2016, that basically said, we don't need middle-aged people, we don't need white people, we don't need people that live in the suburbs and ex 
Serbs and rural America. They're not needed for this new coalition of political leaning. And giving up on that group, abandoning those people with any kind of strategy, effort. And I'm not talking about going out and capitulating to a bunch of right wingers at all. I'm saying to just literally not reach out or message and connect with people and make sure they felt part of a community of participation is one of the great reasons that Donald Trump is the president of the United States today. You think that they did that or? I know they did that. I'll say we, we did that or? No, I, we didn't do that. The political they, class of Democrats of sudden, did that. They're not on top. And when I say they, like demographically, that's me. You know, like that, that, like I'm not part of that group, but demographically, I think everybody on this podcast is. And did the people in our group, in our cohort, all of a sudden, we're not on top anymore, or our grip on the top is slipping. And the whole conversation about privilege, man, I don't want to hear about that. I worked hard all my life. I Everything I got, I earned. Like that, that vibe, that's not inclusive either. That is, I'm keeping what I have. And if I'm not on top anymore, then obviously you don't want me to be part of it. Isn't that a part of the, like, I'm sure the Obama cohort would have welcomed them in, but they would not necessarily have always been on top. And maybe that was enough of a threat to run in another direction. I think that's exactly right. And I would even add to it that what we didn't do was to coach people through uh, or coach people to understand these kinds of cultural shifts. They just happened. And we can say, well, tough shit, man. You didn't get it. You know, that's just how it goes. But look, I mean, I was having a great conversation. I was having a good conversation with my brother-in-law. He was a couple of years older than me. I'm 54. So I think he's 56, 57. And we were talking about Black Lives Matter, right? At a family, at a family gathering. And he's like, look, man, I, like, I don't know why I have to say that. Like he, he runs a, an Edward Jones um, uh, investment office. He's like, I have black clients and I just see everyone as a person and not based on color. And I said, look, Mark, here's the thing. You and I were raised in an age in which we were told that the way you deal with race is to not acknowledge it. You become colorblind. And I know that Colbert makes fun of that, but the reason he can make fun of that is because that's actually what I was taught. And I'm sure it's what you were taught. And he said, yes, it is what I was taught. I said, and then when you thought the thing was to look at someone and to, if you were describing a, a group of people and you were talking about your your black friend across the room, you would go to every length you needed to, to not say it's the black guy across the room, right? You would say it's the guy wearing the yellow shirt, it's the person standing next to the woman, it's the person with his back to us, right? Because the one thing you were not going to say was it's the black guy. You thought you were being honorable. And then you realized the game changed. And all of a sudden you started hearing from people of color that said, you know, when you just ignore the fact of my lived experience as a black man in this country, that's what I call erasure. You're now erasing me and saying that you don't recognize the privilege that you have and the struggle that I live in. I need you to acknowledge it. And you have privilege. And I, and, and I said, and when you were told you weren't supposed to acknowledge it, and then somehow it changed and you're supposed to acknowledge it. And with tears in his eyes, he says, to me, that is exactly how I feel every day. Now, look, I'm not blaming him for not doing his work. He could have watched 13th. He could have read the books. He could have read, you know, the white fragility. He could have done all that. But I'm just telling you, his experience was the rules changed and he got left behind and the catch up for him. It's a lot of work and he's doing his work, right? But that reality that we all have to acknowledge that race is a social construct and we have been changing the construction, uh, the construction uh, rules in America is really serious. And I don't expect my black friends to do this instruction to my white friends, right? I'm not saying to my pe my friends who are people of color, you have to come and explain to all my white friends. I need to go around explaining to my white friends how this goes. You have to acknowledge race. You have to acknowledge that you have racial privilege. You have to recognize that you're acting in that as well. Like this is work that white people have to do, right? And it's also work that progressives have to do and sort of across the board. So it's easier to say, you know, like, yeah, look, things changed. You're not in power anymore. So, and I'm not saying you're suggesting it's a podcast. I'm saying this is just easy for us to say, yeah, things changed. You're on the losing end now. But look, in America, we don't want anyone to be on the losing end, right? We want everyone to be on the participating end. And this is the really hard work that we have to do. And to acknowledge where people actually are and become educators on all these issues and not just people who are whatever the opposite of being an educator is. I don't even know what it would be, but so that was a little preachy there. Sorry, I went on, I went on a little long, but <laughs> that is part of your job description now. 
<laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not just a goodness conspirator. I am a... <laughs> but that's true. I mean, there's a whole lot of work to be done. And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't willing to put that effort into it. So I don't, I don't know how we you know, navigate that, but we're going to have to figure that out no matter what happens in this com- upcoming election. Yeah, look, it's it's brutal. Like, the, look, we have to just everyone has to stop and, and step back and say to ourselves, this country elected Donald Trump to be the president of the United States after the way he behaved and what he said in 2015 and 2016. And there's a chance we're going to do it again. Like, even if he loses, he's not losing 90 to 10. He's going to lose 51% to 46%. And what is it about this country by which 46% still look at this guy and say, yeah, give me another round of that. I mean, it's unbelievable, (laughs) right? So however we talk about American exceptionalism, it's got to bake in that shit show, right? That that is, uh, that the core, you know, this little lava filling in the middle of this is, this is a country that says to itself, we're not totally sure we're done with a guy who cannot seem to be the president of the United States in a way that wouldn't have him fired as an elementary school principal, as a coach of a professional sports team, as a CEO of any country or a co- company, or as anybody who works for your local post office. You behave though at work the way Donald Trump behaves at work, you're fired. And this country is still not sure we're going to do that. In fact, we need to have another debate tonight to really get a good hard look at him and decide if this is going to be okay or not. And the fact that we're not full hair on fire about this is just incredible. Who is making their mind up based on tonight's debate? Who who are the undecideds? Okay, here's here's who I think it is. This is this is my my best guess. This is people. It's not people who are making their minds up. It's people who are deciding will they leave their tribe or not. It's people that are literally thinking. And and I want to use this very carefully because I take domestic abuse extremely seriously. But this the only metaphor I can find. And a friend of mine who works in domestic abuse has told me that this is, to her mind, a great metaphor. There are people who are so traumatized and trapped inside of a political system that it's akin to being in an abusive relationship. And tonight, some small percentage of people are going to make that phone call to get out of that relationship. It's not that they're it's not they're going to learn anything new, but they're going to reach a moment where they say, I have to go. This is my this is my moment. This will be my excuse. This will be the opportunity that I can take. I have to go. And when you realize how deeply people are trapped in these worlds, I think that's what's going on. So I don't think anyone's changing their mind in the old school way. But to your earlier point, the other side, which is us, have to be welcome with open arms, not a tisk tisk or not a you know, make you feel bad for what you said or did before. It doesn't sound like, at least in your experience, that's that happened. And honestly, it can feel kind of tough to do. Oh, look, there, there there's this, I don't, I don't I, you know, I, look, I've waited nearly an hour to drop a Bible passage on you. There, uh, uh, it'll, it'll be the first. But you had to know it was coming. You had to know We're it was ready. coming, right? Turn to your Bibles, everybody. There's this great parable that Jesus tells, turn to Matthew or to Luke 14, which, which is the the servants that work all day, right? And I think what Jesus is getting at, because I Jeff and I joked about this the other day, that Jesus is the humanist that I follow, like the guy who says, you know, those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these. That's kind of core of humanist thinking, right? That you're going to surpass your teacher's teaching and, and live an even more fulfilled life. So Jesus has this great humanist teaching, right? Where he says, look, uh, I want to tell you the parable of the workers, that there's workers who worked all day. They worked 12 hours and they got their pay at the end of the day. But the people who work 10 hours and the people who worked eight hours and the people who worked one hour, they also got paid the full day's wages. And they complained about it. And, and he says, the owner says, you know, the owner of the vineyard gets to pay people what the owner of the vineyard wants to pay people, basically. Like he can be generous if he wants to be generous. And Jesus says, so it is with the kingdom of God, which in Jesus' language is the way that humanity ought to, ought to live with itself. What I think he's getting at, and I think we should also get at is no matter when someone starts putting in the work, they're a full member in that community they've chosen to join. We're not going to say to somebody, you've been here for 12 hours, you've been here for 10 hours, you've been here for one hour. We're going to say to people, you're here now, and all of us are here now. And that is a human impulse to judge each other, to compare, to measure. That's the thing we have to avoid. I wholly agree with that. Hmm. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) I always got a completely different 
interpretation of that. I always took that story as that that was to me, it, it said you can be a Christian all your life or you can have a deathbed con- conversion. Heaven's still the same. It's not like you're going to show up uh, to heaven and go, oh, well, you convert on your deathbed. You can go anywhere you want, but, but you can't go past these velvet ropes into this room because this is a special place just for lifetime Christians or whatever. That's because you didn't have the humanist Jesus. That's why. I guess not. I guess not. Well, he, of course he didn't. He was Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> well, when you say it like that, I think you might be right. Take, I take back all the stuff I said. I think it's just a <laughs> salvation message. <laughs> What Jesus is always getting at, in my view, is that like those things that people put just on religion, they're just, if they're not true in the rest of life, then they're not true in your religion, right? So even if you took it as a deathbed conversion versus a lifetime of living as a person in the kingdom of God, that thing that's only true in religion is useless. Jesus' primary teaching, if it's only good for religion, it's useless. And he sums it up in Sabbath, the great, you know, uh, religious act of Jews. Sabbath was made to benefit humanity, not humanity to benefit Sabbath. All of religious teachings is supposed to be true throughout all of humanity. It's the way it's supposed to work. So so it could be true the way you put it, but it's also true beyond that. And if it's not true beyond it, then what's the point in people knowing it now? Because you're only living your life now. You're not living an afterlife. So why would Jesus teach people to live the afterlife theories now? Anyway, none of that makes any sense if it's not if it's not for use for use right now. I'm assuming that your main target is white evangelicals and conservative Catholics. Is that that's your main target for conversion? It's our main target for our messaging, and that's primarily because when you say to the press, a group of white evangelicals travel the country to ask white evangelicals and conservative Catholics does not vote for Donald Trump, that strikes them like a man-bites-dog story that they can't help but cover. Ah. So, look, we want to reach everyone, but we also know what gets media attention. There you go. And that story, that gets media attention. That moose paper, yeah. <laughs> that moose paper, and, and we get it, right? Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's... It's all about messaging. Yeah, I mean, look, look, I follow, I follow the teachings of a spiritual teacher that was full of punchlines like that, like turn the other cheek and love your neighbors, you love yourself, and uh, do unto others as you do unto you, and do greater works than me, and like he's full of that kind of quippy stuff. So uh, I did. That's just a. Tr- hey, didn't you have a billboard that juxtapositioned turn the other cheek, and then Donald Trump saying lock him up or something like that? Yeah, we did seven billboards in Michigan and seven billboards in Pennsylvania that have a Jesus teaching on one side from the Beatitudes and a quote, uh, actual quote from Donald Trump on the other side. It involves things like turn the other cheek to Jesus on one side and Trump saying, I want to punch oh, him in the one. face yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, all, all kinds. I mean, it's all kinds of those things. That's and awesome. they're actually quite powerful, uh, you know, and welcome the little children and no one builds better walls or uh, you can't serve two masters or and Trump saying uh, support me or you'll be so goddamn poor. Like we we got pretty serious about this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Funny, but horrifying. Yeah. yeah. Horrifying. Like, horrifying. Oh, I had to work on them. They are actually horrifying. Let me ask you this. If that's your target, what percentage do you need to turn to sleep well <laughs> on November 2nd? Yeah, 3 to 5%. That's all. Okay. Our, our, our target has been, we've always said 5 to 15%, but what we know is that in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, if 5% of evangelicals move their support away from Donald Trump, that's more than his margin of victory in 2016 in each of those states. They don't even necessarily need to vote, vote for Biden. They stay home that day would be sufficient. Just a loss of 5%, just a 5% decline, not 5% leave, because a 5% leave uh, Trump and vote for Biden is a 10% shift, right? It's a two-vote swing. And we did a poll of faith voters in those states, and we know that 8% of evangelicals, there's an 8% move from Trump to Biden. 3% is people away from Trump, and 5% are evangelicals who didn't vote for either Trump or Biden or uh, sorry, either Trump or Clinton, but are going to vote for Biden. So it's a huge shift. And within Catholics, it's an 11% move away from Trump to Biden. And look, if those numbers hold, there is no way Donald Trump is winning Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan. No, amen to that. Just this little group of religious people, just this teeny little group, if all the other demographics also do their work, it's massive. It's going to be a landslide. The only problem that as atheists, we're going to have to listen to how the evangelicals finally turn the tide in favor of Biden. Uh, it's going to be awful. <laughs> it's going to be intolerable. <laughs> it's going to be intolerable. And, and so prepare yourself. Considering the alternative, I'll be happy to deal with it. 
look, these people are going to spend their time breaking their elbow, patting themselves on the back about how brave they were to, to, to come around the corner. And this is the th- part that makes it hard, right? You, you, you know, in, in every in every uh, system, the zeal of the newly converted is really intolerable, right? So no matter what it is, somebody who's just new to something comes in with a kind of fury and passion that's, you know, just a little hard to live with. Like the guy who just quit smoking. Totally. Yeah. Or the person that just, you know, just listened to a, a first, uh, a Bruce Springsteen album for the first time. And they're like, <laughs> did you know that Born in the USA is an anti-American song? <laughs> right? And you're like, yes. Or anybody yes. doing CrossFit. <laughs> CrossFit. <laughs> they really are the worst. And now it's those new cycling classes where they mix cycling with, you know, the 30 minute workout things. So, so what's going to happen is all these new religious people are people who are religious who are new to voting for Democrats are going to be just all over the place. And it's going to be really hard to, uh, to live with for a little while. The self congratulations. But that's part of what a mature community needs to do is like give room for the, for the zeal of the newly converted to have its, have its moment as long as we win doug it's been terrific to have you on the show we have we have surpassed the time that we thought we would we would have and you have been super gracious and thank you great conversation we'd love to have you back on uh, after biden wins to <laughs> see what work we can do together i would love to do that but i'm going to disappear from life for 30 years hey doug real quick where can listeners find out more information about vote common good and where you'll be next yeah. So if they're going to listen to this, you know, in the next 12 days, uh, you can find out where we're going to be because uh, it's, you know, we're 12 days out from the election. So whenever you listen to this, we're uh, we're going to be in Pennsylvania, basically, for the next 11. Uh, VoteCommonGood.com is where they can find all that. And uh, I have a website, Doug Paget 1G2Ts. Um, and all my stuff's on there if they're interested in any of that. Anybody other than get your ass out to vote? Anybody got a recommendation they want to throw out? No, that's anything, Jeff? That's my that's, recommendation. That's, it. that's all. We have to do that's, all, that's all. of that. I just had one one real quick thing, and it's only because it just happened. Real quick recommendation, uh, Netflix, An Honest Liar. It's from 2015. It's a documentary about the amazing Randy. He just passed away this week. And that is an excellent, excellent documentary about his entire life's work. So if you haven't seen it, do yourself a wow. favor and check it out. Good one. All right. Well, well on that thanks note, again, Doug. That, absolutely. Appreciate your... Anytime. Well, well, thank you to you guys. It's really a pleasure. Thanks. We'll see y'all in two weeks. Y'all take care. Me? Well, someone invented the party and 